You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. out there in archaeology podcast land we've got episode 110 queued up for you willie pink he's a man of mystery native american cupeño also he from from luiseño going to talk to you about his heritage values how those relate to rock art and his perspective he's uh, quite the authority he was formerly the executive director of the native american heritage commission you'll get the inside language on this one Hi out there on Archaeology Podcast Land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, founder and president of the California Rock Art Foundation. And this is episode 110 of your Rock Art Podcast, the only rock art podcast in the world. And we're we're blessed and honored to have Willie Pink on board, native California Indian, former executive director of the Native American Heritage Commission, and uh, responsible for some critical legislation regarding burials for Native Americans in California and many, many uh, elements of his advocacy role for much of his life. Willie, are you there? I am here, Alan. Well, God bless you. We, uh, where are you uh, located in California right now? Well, I currently live on the Pechanga Reservation. My grandmother is in Pechanga, even though I'm enrolled at Paula, but uh, I reside on Pechanga. What particular ethnic group do you, or groups do you hail from? You know, Cupeño, Cupeño and Luceño. Uh-huh. It's Cupeño? My yeah, my grandmother was Luceño, my grandfather was Cupeño. And and those are talkic in, in the anthropological, linguistic realm, are they? Yes, they are. Uh, and also Uto-Aztecan as well. Uto-Aztecan, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So, the way we ought to get this started, Willie, is I, I asked the million-dollar question, how did you get involved in this advocacy role and working in the realm that you do in terms of trying to preserve, protect, and uh, enhance or educate the heritage values of Native Californians? Well, coming home from Vietnam was just one of the things that I started delving into and trying to meet with various elders throughout Southern California. 
But probably the main driver for me was Jane Penn, who was the founder of Malky Museum. And she would send me to different people to talk with them and then uh, also to go and speak before the county on trying to protect various types of sites. And, and then also we traveled together to meet with the Energy Commission to oppose uh, at that time was the Palo Verde Nuclear Power Project. And so I just started getting familiar with things. She herself was on the Heritage Commission later. And then she asked me when Steve Rios was, had resigned if I would apply for the executive secretary. So she really was the driving force behind me because I would meet with her at least once a week where we would sit and talk for hours. Wow. Uh, she was a great genealogist and stuff. And then uh, very familiar with so many different things because she had opportunity where various people would visit the museum. She knew Lowell Bean, of course, Kathy Sobel. And, you know, some of the other elders from around that area that uh, who shared a lot of information across the board. Was Jane an ethnologist or what was her particular specialization? She was a Kui Indian. <laughs> she was a Kui. OK, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> that was that was what she hailed from. All right. I didn't know her. I, I knew the name, but I didn't know what her uh, association was. So I apologize for my naivete. You know, I'm, I, I don't think I'm extremely familiar with a lot of the associations and activities that were done in uh, the Kuya world. So maybe you can brief me on kind of the history of how this all got going and, you know, where you've been, where you're at and where you want to go from here. Well, it wasn't, you know, the main thing was not wanting to see it end. It was, you know, we were at that turning point. You know, we were at the tail end of the relocation program where we were being outnumbered by Plain Indians that were coming in because of the Bureau of Indian Affairs program. We were oh. population-wise between 60,000, 70,000, and uh-huh. they relocated 150,000 Indians from the Great Plains. So oh, we were outnumbered, and all of a sudden we were over-cultured. You know, we were out-cultured. Yeah. And so when we'd have events, uh, Dennis Banks, who used to live next to my brother, would uh, actually watch him and his group physically push the bird singers off stage one time up in Sacramento during the first Sacramento Indian days. Wow. And so, you know, it was that type of thing where I saw it become even more and more important that we move to preserve California culture, California Indian culture. I think I've seen some of that and, you know, experienced some of that. I tried to help the city of Ridgecrest and the Welcome Center do what they call their annual Petroglyph Festival. And they wanted the whole festival to be focused on Native American heritage values and resources, the city of the petroglyphs, the city of rock art, rock drawings. And of course, the reason being is they're sitting on the largest concentration of rock drawings in the Western Hemisphere. And they had a very, very, very hard time somehow connecting with and dispensing anything that looked authentically California Indian. Yeah, that was, I mean, we had a situation where there was a float designed for the Rose Parade that was uh, representative of a California Indian, and all the Plain Indians called in and complained about it because it didn't, it wasn't representing Indian people. Uh, it was, <laughs> to the contrary, it was Cal- California Indian all the way, you know. Right, right. So I think I have at least, you know, a distant sense of what we're talking about here. What have you accomplished? What have you done to sort of deal with that issue and trying to bring an authentic resonance to California Indian culture and bringing it 
to the general public or to even the native people themselves? Well, it was, you know, when I was executive secretary, well, prior to that, I was also the member on the advisory committee for the California Desert Conservation Area Advisory Committee. Yeah. So I was a committee member, I was appointed by Cecil Andrus and had an opportunity to really work between the Owens Valley and Colorado River. Okay. And working to preserve sacred sites and such. And also it connected people as well to my going door to door in a sense where I would talk to somebody, one, they knew my mother from Sherman or, you know, I was relaying messages from another person. So it kind of created a network. And a lot of those people began communicating with themselves and you find out that there was a certain fear amongst them in terms of wanting to speak about their culture. And so I think that wall started to come down when they started talking with each other. The different tribes started talking to one another. Well, individuals, you know, individuals. Okay. You know, we try to state that this is a tribal matter where actually it's more of an individual matter. And it gets a little confusing, especially when the tribes step in and try to dominate what is culture when the tribal leadership itself has never really participated in the culture. Right. And, but that's changing now, too. We've seen a, a great influx of, of tribal leaders who are also traditionalists as well. And it's a little confusing for some people, but they are representing both sides now. We're in, I would say, 70s, 80s. That was, that was just the opposite. So you think the direction things are going right now is there's, there's tribal leaders who are individuals who uh, have a, a sense of the heritage values and the traditional cultural values of particular groups. Yeah, much more so than they did back then. Well, because we were most every single tribe in California was under economic strife. And so the focus was on trying to turn things around and provide a basic economy for a lot of the reservations. And of course, that changed with the advent of gaming. Yeah. You know, when gaming came in and it really changed the framework of how tribes operate. So then now that today is including an awful lot of cultural events. And you begin to realize how expensive it was or is to maintain cultural events. I'm sure. You know, and we just didn't have that part of the economy. No, no. What did Native people think about uh, where they're at right now and where they've been and where they're headed? Is there optimism, pessimism? I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's very checkered because even though we have gaming and we have tribes that are doing well, wouldn't you say that? Most or many of the groups in California, not federally recognized, do not have gaming and, and may, may have uh, challenging circumstances, correct or no? Well, they do, but then that's the curious part of the whole thing is because those tribes that are without rely upon their culture. I'll give an example, Grindstone Rancheria. You know, they, they have the oldest continuously used roundhouse in the state of California. Right. You know, but at the same time, they're the poorest tribe in the state of California. Well, uh, federally recognized tribes versus non-recognized tribes, I believe, form the bulk of the California Indian nation, if you wanted to call it that. What are the implications of that in terms of those that don't have gaming and really are still trying to get some sort of a foothold in all of this? Well, it just, you know, a lot of his location in terms of you know, which tribes are successful with gaming and which ones aren't or can't, really can't draw enough people to make a gaming facility function. But there still is a revenue sharing program where the gaming tribes share with the non-gaming tribes 
a certain amount of money every single year. Okay. The hope there being is that they would use it uh, from a basis of leveraging, but it's up to each tribe to decide how they're going to use that money. But, you know, uh, oftentimes there's grants that require 20% match. Those monies could be used Say an example of an A&A grant, if you're going to apply for $100,000, you would be able to match it with $25,000. Yeah. So actually you're making that money grow if you follow those types of routes. Yeah. Uh, looking at different things of what you can do as far as improving your own tribal condition. There is avenues of for them to get pull themselves up by their bootstraps and yes. sort of t- participate in this, in this uh, economic largesse. So what I was going to talk about next was kind of my experience – being in archaeology, anthropology for 50 years and seeing some of the changes that went on, I think the biggest change in our profession is the the extent of participation and the leverage that Native Americans have now with respect to issues relating to, uh, you know, the, the nature of historic preservation. Native American monitors, repatriation, Native American concerns, the amount of sort of consultation and coordination that's going on. Have you seen a dramatic change in that over the course of, you know, you're, you're in, the, in your 70s, I'm in my 70s. And so I think we can sort of take, look at it with an historical perspective, can we not? Yeah, we can. But I think there's still some problem in terms of reaching some type of equilibrium. Oh, absolutely. Because, because there's still a wall of resistance that's, that's oh, out there. Oh, oh big, big time. But 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 we have come at least so, you know we have made some progress have we not we have but i think going back to the beginning and let me let me put it this way in terms of yeah. when archaeology what was it back in the 70s and especially because of the passage of sequel we started getting into mitigation archaeology that's right yep yep so what was mitigation if i went out to a site as an archaeologist the only thing i was going to re- be required to do is sample 1% of 1% of the site Right, right. And that completed the science. Yep. And then yep. the archaeologist walked away and let the bulldozers go loose. You're right. It yes, didn't matter right. that there were 1,000 to 2,000 or 5,000 burials on the site. You're right. And they would eventually get bulldozed because that was just the procedure at the time. Yes, early and on. And so, you know, came the demand for Native American monitors. That met with absolutely strong resistance. Yes. You know, I worked as a monitor for free quite often. And then getting into the level of being a paid monitor was, you know, just really pissed off a lot of archaeologists having to pay an yeah. Indian person. And yeah. even I object to somebody just standing around just watching. I think you've got to be a participant. You just can't yeah. stand back and just watch something because uh, you're letting somebody else control the situation then if you're not an active participant. Yeah. Yeah. So those are, th- those are all valid concerns. Absolutely. But I, but, but I think I'm seeing, and tell me if I'm wrong, I can give you some examples, that some Native Americans have begun to embrace a knowledge of or a, a particular position or expertise or career in uh, heritage preservation. Yeah, but you got to get out there and know what you're preserving. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. That's, no, it's that's, true. It's true. Yeah. And I see that as being part of the fault with some of the things going on. I'm, I'm trying to remember Go how ahead. many members of the Heritage Commission now are attorneys. How often do yeah. they get out and get their shoes dirty? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like when I was at the commission, all of our members, with the exception of, I think, one or two, well, were elders. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and came through that struggle and saw the change and fought for things and, and then, you know, realized what, what the victory was in having a heritage commission. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, yeah. so I think that transition now where you have younger people coming up and I'll say it just seeking titles yeah. uh, versus somebody that's actually interested in preservation. Yeah. It gets extremely yeah. complicated and you know, this, once you get married to a project, it can take you years Yes, just can. on a single site to get anything accomplished. Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of dedication. Well, I think that's it for the first segment. See you in the flip-flop, gang. We'll get into things a little bit deeper. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hey there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host for the second segment, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I got Willie Pink here, who's a... quite a historical fellow who's going to talk about the genealogy and the direction things are going. And we're going to have a interesting conversation on mitigative archaeology and what all that means and how that relates back to rock art. Go ahead, Willie. I'm going to let you open open it up. Ask me a question and we'll throw it back and forth. First of all, define mitigation archaeology. What is it? Well, I I think what we're talking about there is with CEQA, and with NEPA, we're given a mandate to, first of all, identify and evaluate archaeological sites to see which ones are significant. That's really a, quite a mouthful. But we try to do that, then we see if they're eligible for the National Register of Historic Places that gives us these criteria. And then assuming it is, then we have to find some way to deal with, minimize the adverse effects of a project. And, and I've been involved in some of the larger projects of my lifetime, including multi-million dollar projects, two of them now, where we have a, an adverse effect on the landscape, on the ground, and we're trying to figure out some way to protect, preserve, or, or minimize that effect. Sometimes that literally uh, you know, works or sort of doesn't work. It's a head-on with the Native Americans trying to deal with values that they have versus the way the law has been interpreted. And I can get into the details of that. 
How's that? Let me respond to that in stating that I know that in, in the southern counties, there is now more land set aside for rats than there is for Indian people. <laughs> okay. I did not. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the multi-species critical habitat, you know, out yeah. there, and it actually bars us from gathering in those areas as well, too. Oh and my that's, word! That's become wow. real upsetting, is because we go, we we run up against locked gates, fences, no trespassing yeah, yeah. yeah. in areas that yeah. we've been using for quite a while. Yeah. So, so, so there's there's that alone, and that's part of mitigation as well. It's part of, of mitigation course. as well in terms of trade. It is indeed. Yes. Here's another example of where you get, let's say, an 80-acre site and a kangaroo rat is noticed on there. So what they do is they say, well, we're going to we're going to put aside an acre up here for the rat. Well, how do you right. know the rat's going to move up there? It's living where it is because that's where it wants to live. You know, and later on when they don't find any rats and they develop that last acre too. Exactly. You know. Yeah, it's silly and it's ignorant and it's it's offensive. Absolutely. But at the same time, on the part of the developer, it's intentional. Yeah, it is. It is. Sure. It's all about the money. It's about the politics. So so let me give you this real life example. Okay. So we're putting in 110 wind turbines in uh, Kelso Valley. And every place we try to put those wind turbines in, there's an archaeological site. So the native people would, would like to see us preserve those sites, protect them, cover them over, and leave them alone. So we attempted to do that, uh, cover them over, somehow protect them, avoid them if possible. And, and we were able to do that on maybe 25, 30% of the sites. Some we couldn't. Some were on stone, on rock. And uh, we found historic beads, glass trade beads from the 1850s, right there on top of those rocks. And I was recommending that we collect those beads and somehow mitigate the adverse effects of the uh, development. The native people thought that was abhorrent and horrendous, that those were sacred sites. That's where the native people would pray and uh, have vision quests and other things along those lines, and, um, and that they should move the turbans. And I was in the middle of that one, and... Uh, Needless to say, the natives did not win that issue. And from the stand, standpoint of their heritage values, they, they uh, really did not approve of the resolution of that issue. Well, and that's... That's uh, a classic case, right? It's, it is in a sense. Uh, but, uh, and I need to go back to what go I ahead. was starting to say, because it kind of in that same area. Yeah. When so the 70s, we would actually get counties to agree that, you know, a portion of the property would be preserved. And the reason being mostly because it involved rock art and a lot of these sites in Southern California are associated with rock outcroppings. Right. We did not see that they would be building huge machines that would grind those rocks up later on. Right. And so that's been occurring at a rapid rate in Southern California where what used to be preserved simply because they were rocks. Now those rocks are becoming road base. Wow. You know, Ben. State of California passed SMARA, which allows developers to go in without a necessary permit for, for mining and extraction of gravels, go ahead and develop a sand and gravel operation and be able to not only just use it for their site project, but also export as well. So they're exempt. And, that, and what's funny about that is it came on the heels of the passing of legislation to protect Pilot Knob for the Krishan. I don't think they realize the impact it had on us here. You know, Pilot Knob was preserved, and then we lost, I would say, probably a good 50% of the sites 
that were preserved as a result of being located within the rocks. That's terrible. And I wasn't aware of any of this, actually. I don't think we have the, and you're aware of this, I don't think we have the political consciousness, the, the particular historic preservation laws that have teeth and accountability to deal with some of these issues, do we? Um, not on the level that we can be, you know, compete with the Building Industry Developers. Association, right. the CBCBIA. Right. They're a strong force, and without their support on any kind of change, you're never going to get anywhere. Okay. Uh, there are some things, you know, we do have within our legislature now, James Ramos, who's a Serrano Indian. Yeah. So he tries his best, but again, he has to walk that minefield of having to try and please everybody. You know, it, it's not an easy thing to get legislation through. No. You know, and you, and you never know when you're going to be ambushed at the very end after you spend almost two years hard work trying to get something. And those, and you know, the UC regents used to be very good at doing that, just sitting back and waiting their moment and saying, well, in the name of science, and then all of a sudden everything would become unraveled. Uh, so getting people on the ground to understand that is, is one of the difficult things as well, too. And especially in a, in a fight for, like, trying to oppose... Uh, wind generators. Right. How do you explain to them that there's overriding economic concerns at the moment and mitigation isn't going to happen because all they got to do is come back and, and say, look, we need the electricity and this is where it's going to be and and too bad for everything else. Right. Right. And that's the way the laws are written. So, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. So there's there's that side to it as well. I, I absolutely understand that. And I think, you know, my experience has been that sometimes there's an influx of funding for Native people that comes on the tail end or the feet of some of these wind or solar projects with respect to Native American monitoring. I trained like 50 Native American monitors for this, you know, six or seven million dollar 101 wind turbine projects and they made 50 to a hundred thousand dollars for that six month or year long period. But the longevity or the, the windfall stops there. There's no economic or ongoing means of sort of tethering or bringing in something that would create some sort of an economic force or be of great blessing or any sort of, positive impact to the wind and solar generating facility. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. See, it comes back to, and just listening to you talk, and this brings back a lot of memories, is why is your voice paramount to mine? You know, if those are my ancestors, if that's my ancestral territory, right. why are you, an archaeologist, allowed to come in and have a voice bigger than mine, more authoritative than mine, it's as simple as that. All of a sudden, I'm pushed to the bottom side, and I see that a lot occurring now is they don't even bring Native American people in until after they've done their walkover surveys. So I'm supposed right. to trust people yeah. that they, yeah. you know, that what they're yeah. telling me in their report is true and accurate, and we find out it's not. And and that's a that's a very good good point because when I've done this kind of work, this compliance work, the environmental work, both for CEQA and NEPA. We almost never have Native Americans that are involved with the survey portion of the initiative. That might change somewhat. 
it's just also, you know, bringing this full circle, there was a book just published from Australia that serves as sort of an example of how to bring in the native perspective, the indigenous perspective of the cosmology, of the understanding of the environment to a study of rock art. And this is the first real book that sort of does that as an example, where you have a a full, resonant, authentic voice of the native perspective of what those images function as, mean, the tether, the religiosity, the cosmology, the animism, everything else that is inherent in that, and bringing that in as a primary vehicle to a better appreciation of, call it rock art for what it is, but that, but that's rarely done in the States. I think uh, Stoffel has tried that in Nevada and Arizona well, to some and, extent. Uh, let's go back to the reason why it's rarely done in the States is because, Alan, during the 70s, there was so much force out there saying, you know, these people don't know anything. Right, right. You know, why should we consult with Native Americans? They don't know anything. The people that are right. here today are not the same people that are representative in the past via archaeology. Right. We had to battle that all the way to show continuity. You know, that's still an issue today. Look at the, you know, the, the recent work that we had to do for uh, the discovery of some of the human remains and trying to, to deal with that, those situations. And we have the same situation to this very day with the academic personnel who call themselves scholars who are directly antagonistic or, you know, directly opposed to Native American concerns. It becomes a different level in terms of you weren't born an archaeologist. No. <laughs> so you had to go through that's the right. process. Yes. And yes, that's, that's true right. for Indian people. I don't care. An Indian person isn't born. You know, cultural is something that you learn. Yeah. But when you take away your te- their teachers and everything else, you know, that becomes an issue. But then all of a sudden, the archaeologist gets to say, oh, that person doesn't know anything because guess what? We killed off their ancestors or we sent them to school and beat it out of them. Right. So right. why should we have to bother dealing with these people? Because we're pretty sure they don't know anything about their culture. But you're going to a group at that time, especially in the 70s, that people were terrified about talking about their culture uh, because yeah. they understood how their parents were beaten in school. And, and it just made you seem like a lower class citizen if you spoke the language or if you did anything or talked about some of the things that you would do culturally. Yeah. 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 You're exactly right. It's not very different from people who, you know, I'm, I'm a, I hail from the Jewish tradition and it was similar to the, to the Jews who didn't want to be Jewish because they were afraid and they, uh, they somehow masked themselves off as something else so that they could uh, not be identified as having that ancestry. So it's not not any different. Do you think that's changed any? Unfortunately, the people that are up in the higher ranks still kind of have that view and vision. You know, unfortunately, when you get into people like Krober, who make statements like there's nothing else to learn about a California Indian because I've, you know, I've done it all. Done it all, yeah. And the, even, even the anthropologists who have studied and appreciated and documented particular indigenous groups say the most ignorant and stupid things like, you know, there is no more 
of this particular group because they no longer exist. That's in in print, right? Yeah. So uh, some of the worst people are some of the most scholarly, which is not much of a help either. Up in Central Valley in the foothills, when you didn't want somebody interfering with your project, you declared them to be Nissan on uh, Miwok. I see. And I actually saw that happen, you know, and that was uh, just because that person had a loud enough voice, knew enough that it was going to interfere with those persons walking away with their million dollar mitigation fee. Wow. So they just said, oh, that person doesn't know anything. They're actually Nissan on. Yeah. So it's been a rough world. It's been a rough world in terms of trying to bring the two entities together who should be trying to work to achieve the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And as I say, every time a site is destroyed, destroyed. It's, ripping, it's ripping pages out of our history. Yeah. And actually what we see now more today is how populous California was, how many Indian people actually lived here. And that was that goes back to Kroger and them again, too. Uh, Florence Shipick and Lowell Bean. Yeah. They start out with this number of 300,000 people here at the time yeah. of contact. Yeah. I would bet just based on the number of sites alone, you're probably looking at closer to 2 million, if not 5 million people that were settled in here. Yeah. And then because we always look at, well, how, you know, they eat acorns. Well, there's enough acorns to uh, feed 300,000 people. And GA and I are genius. And there's 300,000 Indians at the time of contact. Right. You know, hogwash. And then all they did was back out the number because Kroger, you know, he was hired to do that work in terms of guesstimating the population of Indians. Uh, for the yeah. claims case. Yep. And so another person then, because I, I got to avoid names here, took that number and just had it divided it into the number of acres in California and said, oh, it takes six acres to support one Indian person in here in California. Yep. Well, I'll see you on the flip-flop, gang. We'll pick it up next. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hey, gang, we're back. We're going to try to try to pick it up a little bit uh, higher in the stream and talk about rock art and maybe some of the more positive things that are that been going on vis-a-vis Native California initiatives. Go ahead, Willie. Give, give me 
give me give me something positive. Well, something positive, I think we're beginning to see more preservation and, and private properties where rock art is situated. Uh, transference of property to like the Mott Preserve over in, near the Paris area, which is probably one of the better examples of uh, rock art uh, shelters and of that thing. Of yeah. quite, a, quite a complex there. So uh, Audie Murphy, where some of the tribes could got to avoid names, you know, actually taking stewardship over those properties. Okay. And actually getting involved in preservation and have some authority to deal with trespassers and such. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. We're seeing more and more of this link up together to where we can enjoy that type of preservation and to where the public can enjoy it because there is some control on the situation. When, When we build houses up to the edge of these things, we also see a degradation of the sites, but at least the intent is there, then I think it's up to uh, organizations like California Rock Art Foundation, it's up to tribes to kind of step in and, and do that final element of preservation, whether it be fencing, sensors, cameras, whatever it may take, you know, to try and preserve some of these sites. Because once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. Which sites do you think are in desperate need of preservation and protection that you're aware of that needs need our attention? Jeez, oh, you know, we can start with the Intaglios. The Intaglios sure. was the uh, first national registered district in the United States. It was, uh, the nomination was made by the Heritage Mission in cooperation with Javon Werloff. He provided much of the aerial photography for that and uh, the submission, and it was approved. We submitted 500 elements of Intaglios out there, and, and still the big area that's not been examined yet is uh, Milpitas Wash, because that was the flow route for the Colorado River. Okay. You know, we keep going down this artificial route that the river's now been forced to go through without really giving any concern to the possibility of loss of geoglyphs in that Milpitas wash area. And also it's been partially destroyed by the uh, activities of Patton during World War II as well. You know, yeah, all the tank yeah. activities. We had a couple more war games out there as well, too. Sure. So I think it's reopening that situation and looking at it, how much damage has occurred. I've, I've revisited sites out there and I've seen where bulldozers were, would drop their blades and intentionally go across some of the intaglios or geoglyphs and destroy them, which goes to a greater question in terms of can they be restored? Can rock art be restored? You know, and I, and right. I think this is something that needs to get into a discussion level. And what does it mean, restoration? Is that it's in itself some way of degradation? By doing restoration, a good example is Chasse Indian Grinding Rock, which has had tremendous amount of petroglyphs on its surface. But due to the fact that it's uh, carbonated limestone, it dissolves in rain. And so a lot of those petroglyphs have uh, disappeared. I think the local Indian people should be allowed to take photographs or follow the remnants of what's visible on there and score them back out again. So where they're visible to the public and visible to the tribal people rather than somebody just making a decision saying, well, they should just be allowed to die a natural death. That wasn't an Indian decision. That was a parks decision. Right. You know, right. So, and, and we do know, at least I know other people know as well, that the native people would revere, call it embellish if you will, or somehow enhance the ancient designs and repeck them to bring out their power correct? Yeah, I would, personally, I you've would seen, say yes. You've, you've, are, you've, seen, you've seen that, haven't you? Yeah. So that happens very commonly, certainly in the 
in the Western Great Basin, or at least in the my own research area. And so that seems to uh, give us a genealogy of that activity, that it wasn't to destroy, but it was to enhance or somehow uh, create the... But by going back and rescoring it, I think you're revering those images and enhancing their visibility. I think that would be amazing. Yeah. The, the other thing with all of the sites, and that's the connectivity, the one site in relation to another site. Why are there four or five, six mazes out there? What is that connection? You know, what are they using the mazes for? Are they the same people or is it something that is cross-cultural lines? Right. There are, you know, the Topak maze, which is still a mystery. There's a maze out by, is it Mule Mountains? No, it's not Mule Mountains. It's the next one over the yeah. Little Maria's, I believe. McCoy Mountains. Yeah. Uh, there's a maze out there as well, too. What do these represent? You know, direction is everything. And so, you know, when you destroy elements around a site, later on you learn, hey, that was a key aspect to the site, why that site was even there. You know, then we get into arguments over wave boulders that have a multitude of cupules on them. Where I've had some people come up and argue that those are uh, xenoliths. They're just, you know, harder rock eroding out and leaving these pockets on them and it weren't, they weren't made by human. But when you connect them all together and you've got almost 27 of them in a region, uh, there's a strong connection that you just can't make that analysis from just looking at one site. You have to bring all 27 together. Of course, which, yeah. Which way are they facing? You know, why are they facing that way? You know, all of these different things that 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 lead us to a greater understanding of why some of these things. And, and it's kind of amazing when you realize that the ability to look at the stars and actually plot things and make connections, uh, that it takes a lifetime. And passing on that information to a group of people that are going to be reliant upon those things to know the seasonal changes be able to predict weather, you know, knowing when you're going from winter to summer, summer back to winter. And I think there's been too much focus on solstice without enough focus on equinox, because I think equinox is actually more important than solstice was. These are things yet to be learned. And if we keep destroying everything, we're never going to learn it. Right. And it's so rare that we have a professional astronomer or even native people, for that matter, that will do the hard work and the scholarship necessary to understand a, a rock art site, an archaeological site, a sacred site. Yeah. There, there is an example of that at, at Mary's Cave in the eastern Mojave Desert where they've got 25 years of experience studying it. And it is a archaeoastronomical site which has celestial imagery on the ceiling as well as on the floor, and uh, it has to do with the equinox and the uh, winter solstice as well, and the viewing of it from that rock shelter. And there was a, an extensive book of over 700 pages written out on, online from an astronomer who studied it for that length of time to um, begin to understand some of the nuances surrounding that site but that's that's rather special that doesn't happen very often 
Yeah, but the, you know, once you, again, when you get around to different locations and you start matching things up, and, and unfortunately, when you don't examine the entire site, is that we had one site where we had actually pictographs in black. Yeah. Kind of a grayish thing. But when we waited, we were close to uh, Equinox and the shadow kind of moved across the pattern. Mm-hmm. 22 stones, but you there was actually two pillared like stones, probably 20 feet high at least. Wow. And so then the tribal people, as well as the archaeologists, as well as the developers said, oh, we got to preserve the rock art. So I went back out there. The two mass stones that were part of the complex were gone and they were turned into road base. And I said, you know, one can't exist without the other. Exactly. You know, the whole purpose of trying to preserve the site was preserve the rock art, preserve, you know, the mass stones that had everything to do with the rock art, why the rock art was there in the first place. (laughs) Uh, So sometimes you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Yep. Yeah. I get the sense that it must be rather frustrating for you being, you know, uh, somewhat on the on the cutting edge of trying to defend and deal with some of the most thorny problems that Native Americans have in terms of preservation and uh, dealing with heritage values. And you've been doing that for decades, right? Yeah, and there, there's still some old sore points. You know, it's like when you travel into Sacramento on I-5 that, you know, there's over 2,000 Native American burials were used as road base in the construction of I-5. Wow. You know, uh, one mound was destroyed. They just used it as fill. Yeah. You know, and there were several mounds that are, I, I believe two mounds were actually destroyed. Then the uh, Brazil mound is still partially intact anyway. Yeah. And again, that's a shift in culture. It's a shift for me because going up in the Sacramento area and all of a sudden realizing Sutter's Ford is on a burial mound. Uh, you have as these well. various mounds around the Sacramento area. And I didn't understand it from my own cultural aspect of it. And, you know, so you have people living on these islands, and were they handmade islands? And yes, they were. That's an awful lot of intensive work going to putting these things together so that they could survive the winters. So yeah. you get into a whole bunch of things, and and when you get in the foothill and you start getting back into rocky points and everything, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you got petroglyphs again. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I this goes back to one archaeologist gave a paper one time on the lack of, of bedrock mortars in Orange County. Mm-hmm. And. Everybody was applauding her for such an observation because she did it through researching the paper record. Yeah. And I said, yeah, but you failed to tell everybody one thing. There's also a lack of bedrock in Orange County. (laughs) You can't have a bedrock mortar unless you have bedrock, right? Yeah. So, but we kind of do that with, with a lot of different things. You know, we just, you know, if you were to paint the boundaries where rock art is, Central Valley would almost be blank, zero, nothing there. Yeah, it's, it's devoid. There ain't yeah. very much rock rock in the Central Valley. And even with the archaeological sites that are there or were there and are still there, they're buried under many, many meters of alluvium. They're ancient. But, but it goes back and asks the question, what did they use then for their astrological guidance Right. for a lot of different things? What did they rely upon? Mount Diablo was one. Yes. There were several. The uh, peak outside of uh, the town of Jackson, yeah. uh, uh, McCullumney Hill. You yeah. know, so even from there, even the faintest fire could be seen. So those fires were, were, were carried signals. And and so there was a lot of communication going on across that valley and from observation posts. 
you know, mm-hmm. and informing people of things. Yeah. Lots to do, lots to think about. Well, God bless you, Willie Pink. Thanks for your reflections and dropping in and uh, giving us the the view from on high. <laughs> Alan, I appreciate I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. God bless you, all you uh, fans of rock art and Native American concerns. See you on the flip-flop. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.